Amen. Well, today we return to our exposition through the Gospel of Mark. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Uh, We're going to be in verses 24 through 37 this morning. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to, to 37. We find ourselves in the middle of Jesus giving a discourse to his disciples on the Mount of Olives as he anticipated going to the cross in a few days. And I know we're we're jumping right into the middle of it, but let me go ahead and first read our passage for this morning, and then I'll try to catch you up to speed after. Okay, so please stand with me if you are willing and able for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Now, I completely understand if you feel a bit disoriented after jumping into that passage because it's been several months since we were last in Mark. Uh, So, This morning, I want to back up a little bit today and just help you get your bearings as we look again at this this critical passage in Mark's gospel. Uh, As I I mentioned earlier, we are in the final week of Jesus' ministry on earth before his death. Uh, He had entered Jerusalem triumphantly on Sunday to the shouts of the crowd in chapter 11 of Mark. On Monday, he returned to the temple to confront the evil that had overtaken it compared the temple to a, a withered fig tree that was dead. And inside, he, he cleared out those who were doing business within it for selfish gain. And this incident really upset the religious elite who had already been oriented against him. And it led to a series of conversations, or, or better yet, confrontations between Jesus and, and these leaders and the people in the temple complex on Tuesday. 
in which Jesus demonstrated his unparalleled wisdom and also revealed the, the spiritual bankruptcy of the Jewish religious system in his day. Now, as we come to chapter 13, we find that Jesus had left the temple with his disciples that same day. His, his public teaching ministry was done for the day, but his ministry to his disciples wasn't. And as they, they left the temple, one of his disciples made a comment. He said in verse 1 of chapter 13, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The, the temple in Jesus' day was indeed wonderful. It was in the middle of an 80-year renovation and expansion project being led by Herod the Great. And on the hill of Jerusalem, it stood out conspicuously. Its hues of white and gold was glistening under the sun. The temple was a place of beauty. It was a point of pride for the Jewish people. And this disciple of Jesus, having just witnessed Jesus silence the leaders of Israel one after the other, he was very likely looking forward to what Jesus would do next. Like the other disciples, he was probably still expecting Jesus to usher in his kingdom as the promised Messiah at any time. And so with this mix of pride and anticipation, this disciple said to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and, and what wonderful buildings. Perhaps he was thinking, what, what a wonderful place for us to rule over together. But Jesus said in verse 2, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There was no mistaking his meaning. And Jesus said that the temple, the pride of Israel, would soon become a pile of rubble. And history is a witness to Jesus' prediction. His words came true in AD 70 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. But at that time, what Jesus said was shocking to his disciples. He was completely upending their expectations. And so four of them approached him privately with some additional questions in verse 4 on the mountain ridge just east of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And they said in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? If indeed... The temple is coming down. They, they, they wanted to know when it would occur, and they wanted to know what to look out for. And these questions prompted Jesus to launch into the, the longest teaching section recorded in Mark's gospel. In this Olivet Discourse, which spans all of chapter 13, Jesus answered his disciples' questions. He addressed the when and the what that they were wondering about. But this discourse is actually more about him making sure that they are prepared for what's to come. As we consider this chapter, it's inevitable that you might be drawn into the debates over the timing of the events that Jesus mentioned in this chapter. And that's partially because Jesus talked about events that had both a near-term fulfillment as well as a longer-term fulfillment. He discussed events that happened in and around AD 70, but he also mentioned events that still await his return. And we need to be mindful of that as we read this chapter and try to discern what Jesus is actually referring to, but we can't lose sight of the fact that 
though his discourse concerns the future, and though there are, are some things that we need to properly interpret, its main purpose is to call us to be faithful right now. Yeah, now, the last time we studied this passage together, I said there were four initial preparations that Jesus wants us to make in light of the future. And today I'm going to add one more preparation from verses 24 to 37. But, but before I do so, I think it might be helpful if I briefly recap what Jesus has already taught us in this chapter. So as Jesus begins this discourse, the, the first preparation he encourages his disciples to make in light of the future is to be wary of deceivers. Be wary of deceivers. So in verse 5, Jesus warned his disciples about those who might lead them astray. Uh, he said that many would come in his name claiming that they were in fact the Messiah. And the sad thing is that many others would be led astray by these imposters who would really direct people to themselves rather than to Christ. There is great need for followers of Jesus to be discerning as we await for the things to come because we need to realize that deceivers will come and be wary of them. Okay, so not only do we need to be wary of deceivers, but we also need to be realistic about this world. We need to be realistic about the world. That's the second way to be prepared, and that's found in verses 7 and 8. Jesus said in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Well, conflict is inevitable. The disciples of Jesus would soon experience it with Rome in the, the Jewish-Roman wars that led to the temple's destruction. We, we see it very clearly in the news today. Jesus is telling us to not be surprised by the fact that Russia is invading Ukraine and civil wars are happening in places like Yemen and Ethiopia and Myanmar. These things must take place because we cannot escape the, the consequences of the sinfulness of humanity. A war is the inescapable consequence when you have masses of people living for themselves apart from God. And Jesus also spoke of earthquakes and famines in verse 8. These are all things that we should expect in the world. There, there, there's a desire in us all to, to want to be optimistic about the future of this world, but Jesus was a realist. He said, look for war. Expect false teachers. Get ready for natural disasters. Be ready for scarcity. All these, all these things are still to come, and they will get progressively worse. They're just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, while we can hope that the UN or, or NATO or other peacekeeping efforts will prevail in the short, short term, and we can hope that certain policies and innovations will help the world food supply stabilize in the coming months, we can't expect that they are the answer for the long term. We need to realize that the fallen nature of this world will manifest itself over and, and over and over again until Christ returns. Be prepared for what's coming by being realistic about this world. Be wary of deceivers and be a realist about humanity. The third preparation Jesus wants us to make for the future is to be ready to endure. Be ready to endure. And we, we see this in verses 9 through 13. Jesus tells us to be ready by expecting persecution, but still proclaiming the gospel as we trust in the Spirit. 
In these verses, Jesus said that despite hate and opposition, the gospel will succeed. Progress of the gospel cannot and will not be halted because God will accomplish what he has set out to do. It will go to the, the ends of the world, Jesus said. Persecution will come, but, but it will not stamp out the message of salvation through Christ. So as Christians, we must be, proclare, pre, be, prepare, excuse me, be prepared to proclaim it. We must be prepared to bear witness to Christ, no matter where we find ourselves, trusting that, that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak, even when we aren't sure what to say. And then we find in verses 14 through 23 an exhortation to be prepared to flee. Be wary of deceivers, be realistic about the world, be ready to endure, and be prepared to flee. Now, I want you to look with me at at verse 14. It is an important verse because it marks a a transition in Jesus' comments. You'll notice that Jesus referred to the abomination of desolation here. Well, many of you have heard about this before, but to others this may be an, an unfamiliar phrase, especially if you're, you're just joining us in our study through Mark. Uh, this is a phrase that has had multiple fulfillments over the years. It pops up first in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapters 9 and 11 and 12. When Daniel used it to predict a, a desecration of the temple, which would later occur in 167 B.C., when a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes erected a, a, a scandalous pagan altar in the temple. That was an abomination. It was a defilement of God's holy place. Here, Jesus uses that same term to predict another abomination that was coming. Jesus was most likely referring to some of the horrific things that were allowed to occur in the temple shortly before the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. And so the the prophecy of the abomination of desolation that began in Daniel had an initial fulfillment in 167 B.C. And then a potential second fulfillment around the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But there seems to be an an even greater and final fulfillment of this prophecy just prior to Jesus' second coming. And we believe that because of what Jesus says here, but also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, where, where Paul describes a, a man of lawlessness who will exalt himself in the temple of God. And that man is the Antichrist. He will come in the last days and he will do something shocking. He'll do something abominable to trigger the return of Christ in the end. And so the abomination that Jesus describes in verse 14 doesn't just refer to the events that would soon occur around AD 70, but it also seems to point to a future fulfillment in the last days. Because if, if you look with me at chapter 13 and you just skip down to verse 19, Jesus tells us that in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This seems to be a very clear indication of the great tribulation that precedes Jesus' second coming described in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. The severity of this tribulation will be without equal in human history. And so we see in these verses both a near and a far fulfillment. Jesus is telling his disciples to be prepared for what's going to happen in the temple in just a few decades. But he's also telling them, and he's telling us, that there's a greater tribulation to come. And so that's why Jesus tells his disciples to be prepared to flee in verses 
14 through 16, when, when tribulation comes, whether in 70 AD or in the, the coming great tribulation before the end, followers of Christ need to be ready to flee. Not because of the power of Rome or because of the power of the Antichrist, but because the divine judgment of God in those days will be se- severe. So, so flee to the mountains for safety and refuge until Christ returns. Flee to Christ. Let, let, let the blood that he shed on the cross be your protection from God's wrath. Let him be the rock of your salvation. In other words, don't get attached to this world. It's going to be judged. Be ready to flee from it to the refuge that will, that will save you from that time of tribulation. Okay, so those are the four initial preparations that Jesus wants us to make in light of what's coming. Okay, be wary of deceivers. There will always be people drawing you away from Jesus and to themselves. Be realistic about the world. It's, it's sinful and getting worse. Be ready to endure, trusting the Spirit through persecution. And be prepared to flee, for the judgment of God will be severe. Okay, that's our introduction for this morning. I hope we're ready now to tackle the rest of this chapter, which is going to be our text today. Fortunately, there's just one more preparation that I want you to notice from these final verses of chapter 13. And that is to be watching for Christ. Be watching for Christ. Well, the first half of the Olivet Discourse is pretty grim. The the last half is really meant to bring us hope. As the disciples questioned Jesus about the future, Jesus began by giving them a a reality check. He he recalibrated their expectations. He didn't promise immediate glory and honor. Instead, he told them to expect deception and war and famine and persecution and tribulation. But here in the last half of his answer, he told them why it would be worth it. He pointed them to himself and to his return. Verses 24 to 37 of Mark 13 are meant to give us confidence that Jesus will come again to vindicate his own. But we have to stay ready for that day. In this present age when things aren't what they ought to be, we need this word of hope and encouragement. That's why we need good eschatology in the church. We, we need to have a solid understanding of what will happen in the last days. If we don't think eschatologically, if, if we don't think rightly about the end, then we will default to believing that the destiny of this world relies upon the ingenuity of mankind. We will put pressure on ourselves to end conflicts and cure disease and prolong life and save the environment and feed the hungry and comfort the abused and protect the vulnerable. But as we've heard from Jesus and as we observe, just, just by a quick, quick glance out into the world today, we just aren't able to stop the train of sin and depravity that continues to pick up steam. Don't get me wrong, as Christians, we should still do our part to stem the tide of sinfulness in our God-given spheres of influence. But when we don't have good eschatology, we will place burdens upon ourselves and others that we just can't carry long term. Jesus tells us here that we do not have to hope in ourselves. We have a better, a more certain hope for the future. We have the promise that our Lord and Savior will return in glory to gather his people to himself. And so we need to be watching for him. That is the fifth and final preparation Jesus wants us to make as we consider 
what's to come. But first, we need to be watching for Christ because He will gloriously vindicate His people. We need to be watching for Christ because He will gloriously vindicate His people. The word but in verse 24 indicates a transition. And Jesus said, but in those days, after that tribulation. So Jesus was now talking about a new phase of the end times. What what Jesus described in the following verses comes after the, the tribulation events mentioned in verses 14 through 23. Jesus was talking about what would happen in those days at the end, specifically when he comes again, as we'll see in verse 26. But first, in in verses 24 and 25, we find some vivid imagery of cosmic occurrences that will appear during this time. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, this language may seem a bit strong, it may perhaps even seem strange to our modern years. But this imagery comes from the Old Testament in passages like Isaiah 13, 9 to 10, Isaiah 34, 4, Ezekiel 32, 7 to 8, Joel 2, 10, Amos 8, 9. This is the language of the prophets who spoke about God's judgment. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, these descriptions function as metaphors for the fall of pagan nations. But there's good reason for us to believe that what Jesus described here is not simply a metaphor. But these events will literally come to pass. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, there were cosmic signs. Luke 23, 44 tells us that darkness was over the land for three hours. And when we read Revelation, in particular, chapter 6 and verses 12 through 14, this language of cosmic disturbance is mentioned again. When Jesus returns, we can expect that he will be accompanied by great Signs. The sun and the moon and the stars will be affected in some supernatural way. We know God has, and we know He He can do this. And we should expect that something out of the ordinary will happen in the skies. And and Jesus said that that the powers in the heavens, which could refer to the spiritual forces of of Satan, they will be shaken. And, And that would be fitting because this will be a time of spiritual distress for the enemies of Christ. And then Jesus said that people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Son of Man is one of the ways Jesus liked to describe himself. It's a term that just means human being. And so it wouldn't have drawn much offense in those days. But those who know their Bible know it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. When one like a Son of Man is said to come with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days, to be given glory and dominion and a kingdom. And and, and those references to clouds are significant because clouds, as Pastor Stephen has reminded us in his exposition of Exodus, have always been associated with the presence and glory of God in the Scriptures. Jesus will come in a visible way that will be seen, and he will come in the glory of the clouds as the Son of God. This isn't going to be like his first coming. First time around, he came without fanfare. In a dark, small little village, in a humble manger, to a poor mother. Came as a helpless baby. He, he worked as a normal carpenter. He ministered with a pretty unimpressive group of followers. He was mocked and, and beaten and doubted and rejected and killed. But when he comes again, 
Oh, when he comes again, there, there will be no mistaking it. He will come in the sky. He will come with the clouds. He will come to put down every enemy to take the kingdoms of this world to himself. He will come to rule and to judge and to be worshipped. Jesus will not be like all the, the false, small-time imposters who claim to be the Messiah. There will, there will never, the world will, will have never received anyone like him when he comes again. His, his return will be global. It will be open. It will be public. It will be glorious. Our mental snapshots of Jesus are, are mostly of, of him in a manger or him walking the dusty streets of Palestine or on some green hill or, or him hanging on a cross. But what will consume the minds of those on that day in the future will be the Son of God coming in the clouds with all glory and honor. And many will, will wonder, what is going on? Who is that man? That is our Savior. That is our Lord. He is coming for his, his people. Look at verse 27. His purpose is to gather his elect. Look at what he says. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And that just means that Jesus will send his angels to gather his people from everywhere. He will bring together people from all nations and, and backgrounds and, and cultures and languages. Jesus isn't just coming for the Jewish people. He's coming for everyone. No believer at that time will be forgotten. No believer will be missed. Jesus is coming to gather his people around himself. Notice, notice what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's telling them that the time of the temple being the gathering place of God, God's people, is no more. Instead, we're to look forward to that day when we will be gathered around Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who will unite us, and the one who should be the focus of our hope, more so than heavenly mansions and pearly gates and ageless bodies and friendly animals. Our primary hope is to be united to our Savior. Christian, there is no need to fear or fret or grow anxious over the difficulties of this world because we hope in a Lord who is returning to vindicate his people in glory. Be watching for Christ because he will vindicate his people. Also be watching for Christ because his words will come to pass. Be watching for Christ because his words will come to pass. In verse 28, Jesus draws our attention to a fig tree. He's talked about a fig tree before, especially on his way into the temple back in chapter 11. There he mentioned how the tree's lack of fruit mimicked the lack of spiritual fruit among Israel and its leaders. And it was a fitting picture, that fig tree, of the fruitless temple that would soon wither away just like that fig tree and be destroyed. Now, here Jesus isn't using the, the same picture or the same example. Fig trees were common in the area. Uh, they shared real estate on the Mount of Olives with olive trees. And so they were easy examples to use. And they were particularly appropriate for this lesson because unlike the evergreen olive trees, they were deciduous. They shed their leaves at certain times of the year. And at the time of Passover in the spring, fig trees would begin to leaf in anticipation of producing fruit in May and June. So Jesus was making a, a simple comparison. When you see those fig leaves, you know what's coming soon. 
So also he said in verse 29, when you see these things taking place, these signs that I've mentioned, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What are these things that he's referring to? Is he still discussing the events leading up to his coming again from verses 24 to 27? Or is he going back further and referring primarily to the events related to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that his disciples are really wondering about earlier in the chapter? On the surface, as you're reading verse 29, you might be inclined to think that Jesus is talking about the second coming. And that's because the word he in verse 29 seems to refer to Christ coming again. You know that he is near. He's coming again, or he's almost coming again at the very gates. But that word could also be translated it. You might see a footnote, or it might even be translated that way in your Bibles, if you're using a different translation. Because uh, there's actually no stated subject in the Greek. And in that case, Jesus could be referring to his kingdom being, com- being near, or simply to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem that he's referred to earlier being near. So, so Jesus could be saying, when you see these things taking place, then you know that either Christ is coming again to bring about his kingdom, or that the destruction of Jerusalem is near. Oh, which is it? The problem becomes even more acute because of verse 30, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So follow with me. If Jesus is talking about his coming again, then this generation would refer to the generation alive at that point in time. And the point would be that Jesus' coming would follow relatively quickly after the signs leading up to it. The generation alive during that time would would be a witness to it all. The signs leading up to his coming and his coming itself. And so learn the lesson of the fig tree and know that Jesus will come shortly after the signs mentioned. Now, that interpretation does make some sense because Jesus referred to all these things that will take place in verse 30. And that could easily be a reference to more than just the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about all the things that are coming. Jesus could be talking about events leading up to his coming and the destruction of Jerusalem. But the problem is that that's just not the most natural reading of the phrase, this generation. To readers in Mark's day and to the disciples of Jesus, it would be much more sensible to think of this generation as referring to the generation of their day. And so Jesus really could be talking about the events leading up to A.D. 70 because the destruction of the temple would come within about 40 years, a generation. In fact, if you look back at verse 4, you'll notice that as the disciples considered Jesus' claim that no stone among the temple buildings would be left upon another, they asked Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? They were asking about the destruction of the temple. So Jesus could really be answering their question by saying, once you see false Christs and wars and earthquakes and famine and and persecution in the first century, and you see the temple being desecrated, these things indicate that the temple is about to be destroyed and Jerusalem is about to fall. All right, which of these views is right? I'll be honest with you. I've been wrestling through this text quite a bit during the week. 
and I'm not sure. Okay? I'm inclined to say that Jesus is referring primarily to the fall of Jerusalem as he answered the disciples' original question. But I think he could also be warning us that we should all recognize the signs of the time since we are still living in this age of distress, in this time of crisis, until the return of our Savior. So the generation of Jesus' day needed to take note of the signs that would point to the fall of the temple. But there could also be a sense in which every generation after also needs to take note of the signs that point to Christ's return. The ultimate point of these verses shouldn't be missed, though. Jesus was emphasizing that all these things will come to pass. They will happen. What Jesus says is what we can expect will happen. Look at verse 31. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's the main idea. What Jesus predicted about the future would and will come true. His words, they're more forever than diamonds, more more permanent than Sharpie, more long-lasting than an Energizer battery, right? The grass withers, the flower fades, Isaiah says, but the word of our God will stand forever. This world is not ultimate. It is not permanent. This world and everything in it will pass away, but not God's word. We watch for Christ because he said that he will come again and his words will come to pass. Be watching for Jesus because he will gloriously vindicate his people. Be watching for him because his words will come to pass. And finally, be watching for him because he will return at any time. Be watching for Jesus because he will return at any time. In verse 32, Jesus said, but concerning that day or that hour, he's referring to the day and hour of his return here, and regarding the timing of his return, Jesus said, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. While there will be signs of his coming, no one knows exactly when it will come, with the exception of God the Father. And that means we shouldn't guess at when Jesus will return. That makes all those predictions that certain people and groups have made over the years about the return of Christ just dangerous, foolish speculations that have no place in the life of a true follower of Jesus. But Jesus' statement begs the question, Why doesn't Jesus himself know? Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses will use this verse to claim that that Jesus wasn't really God because he said that he doesn't know everything like God does. But we need to understand here that Jesus makes it very clear that he is God in these verses. He's the Son of Man who will come in the clouds, which represent the presence and glory of God. His words, he said, will outlast even heaven and earth itself. The Gospel of Mark affirms his deity from the very first verse of this book. Mark has said that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so to understand what Jesus meant here, we have to understand his two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature in one person. Jesus was perfect God and perfect man. Now sometimes we see more of one nature in him than the other in Scripture. Uh, You might remember back in Mark 4 that in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was a a man who needed sleep. But a moment later, he was the God who who calmed a violent storm. There there is mystery in all this. We we can't know for certain exactly how and to what extent his divine nature took a backseat to his human nature. But Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This was not a surrender of his deity, but it was a laying aside of it for a time. And that's because Jesus himself trusted the Father. He didn't need to know everything because he was confident in his Father's plan and knowledge. And we too can trust in the Father's plan and timing, but the fact that we don't know when that day and hour will be means that we must stay ready for it lest we be caught unprepared. And that's what Jesus stresses in the final verses of this chapter. Look at, look at verse 33. Jesus said, be on guard. In other words, take care, watch out, be discerning. And then right after, he says, keep awake, stay vigilant, stay alert, for you do not know when the time will come. And then he talks about a man going on a journey who leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Verse 35, he says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now just notice how many times Jesus says, stay awake. He says it in verse 33, verse 34, verse 35, verse 37. The point is to be watching for Jesus. Like like, like a doorkeeper, focused on being ready when Jesus comes. Don't be sleeping because he could come at any time, evening, midnight, rooster crow, morning. These sync up with the traditional Roman watches of the night. These are the times when people are most prone to sleeping, but followers of Christ need to be awake. How do we stay awake and and watch for Jesus? Well, first we watch by praying that we don't enter into temptation. This is what Jesus commanded his disciples to do just a couple of days later in Gethsemane. We need to be on guard against the temptations of this world that cause us to forget Christ and abandon our hope in him. We need to pray against the temptation to follow false Christs. We need to pray against the temptation that we often feel to become the saviors of this world ourselves. We need to pray against the temptation to believe the lie that this world is all that there is. We need to pray against the temptation to be lazy and to hit the the snooze button on our Christian lives until a, a more opportune time. We stay awake and watch for Jesus by praying that we don't enter into temptation. We also stay awake by working. Look at verse 34. In the parable, Jesus said, or Jesus told, uh, he described the master giving his servants a charge, each with his work. And so we need to be doing that work which Jesus has charged us with. We need to be busy with the assigned tasks he has given us. For some of us, it's working with integrity and being an example of Christian faithfulness at work. So we might not be more skilled than our non-Christian counterparts, but we have a better motivation. We, we don't ultimately report to shareholders or an entitled boss. We work for the king of the universe. For others, it's fighting to believe and stand for what is true and honoring to God at school. For some, it's, it's using the time and energy we have as singles to serve others and befriend others and pursue interests that will cause us to give our praise to our creator. For others, it's raising Kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For some, it's setting an example of godliness for future generations. It's leading a Bible study faithfully. It's serving at church behind the scenes with excellence. It's caring for that non-Christian friend. It's inviting over that non-Christian neighbor. It's pursuing 
God's tug on your heart to pursue ministry and missions. Staying awake and watching for Jesus is active. It, it involves doing the things that God has entrusted us to do right now. Because we don't know when Jesus will return, we pray and we work as we wait for him. And finally, we watch for Jesus with each other. We stay awake and we watch for Jesus by watching with each other. But we aren't meant to wait for Jesus alone. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says this, listen, keep watch on yourself. Be watchful, stay alert, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then right after that, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We need to be watchful, we need to watch ourselves, but we want to help others in this as well. We need to bear one another's burdens. We need to have conversations with each other, speaking God's promises, speaking of how Christ is is precious to us, speaking of the dangers of, of sin, speaking of his coming, speaking of how sweet eternity will be and how sweet obedience is. We need to be texting, calling, meeting with each other so that we can be watching out for one another and reminding one another to look for Jesus who is coming again. Because we don't know when Jesus will come back, stay awake, pray, work, and wait with each other for our Savior to appear again. And Jesus had a lot to say about what was still to come. He wanted his disciples, and he wants us to be prepared, to be wary of deceivers, to be realistic about this world, to be ready to endure persecution, to be prepared for the coming judgment of God, and to be constantly watching and waiting for his return because he will come to gather his elect. He has said it. We can count on it. And we must stay ready because Jesus may return at any time. So will you stay ready? Will you stay faithful? Can you look at your calendar for this week and say that this is what I should be doing if Jesus came back on Friday? Now let's be like John Wesley, who was, who was once asked how he would spend tomorrow if he, he knew Jesus was going to return in the evening. And he took out his diary, and he read the, the list of things that he was committed to, and he said, these are the things that I would do tomorrow if I knew the Lord was returning then. Jesus is coming with the clouds. Let's look forward to it and let's be doing the things that we should be doing when he shows up. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for our glorious hope. We thank you that our Savior did not just come once to save us from sin, but he is coming again to redeem us, to bring us into, into the glory of his might and his presence. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to, to cast our eyes upon Jesus, that we would look eagerly to his return, that, that that would motivate us to hope and to live faithfully here and now. Uh, we, we admit that so oftentimes our, our eyes are, are, are just looking toward things that are going to happen this week or, or in the next month or in the next year, things that are going to happen in this world. And, and sometimes we think this world is ultimate. But Father, oh, help us to remember that Christ is coming again. Help us to look forward to that day faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.